PBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for episode two of season 11. In this episode, we broke down the four elements of the state's case against Pablo, and we've got some questions we're going to go over, so let's get right to it. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we jump into your questions about Season 11, Episode 2, I do want to mention a a small update in the West Memphis 3 case. If you follow me on social media, you would have seen this back on Wednesday. It actually broke a couple days before that. But a judge has ordered now the West Memphis Police Department to to respond to Damian Eccles' open records request uh, regarding where the evidence in his case is and if it was destroyed by whom, under whose orders, when and how. Just to fill you guys in where things were at, you know, when all the, the information came out where they were claiming that the evidence had been destroyed, Damian and his team filed an open records request with all the information I just mentioned. Uh, which by law, in, in Arkansas law, the state had, uh, or the, the police department had, I believe it was three days, maybe it was 10. Uh, but there's a limit for when they have to respond to an open records request, and they just didn't. They didn't respond and say, this is where it was, uh, this is where it was destroyed, or it wasn't destroyed. They, they literally ignored the request, which violates Arkansas law. Uh, so they filed a complaint. Uh, with the with a, with a higher court, and and just this week, uh, that higher court has now ordered the West Memphis Police Department to respond. Uh, that's now been a few days, and they still haven't responded. Which again goes back to my my original uh, opinion on the matter is I don't believe the evidence was destroyed. I think I, I, if it had been destroyed, I think it would be very easy for them just to come out and say. Yes, it was destroyed on this day. It was a mistake. Now, that may open them up for some legal trouble, but they're already in legal trouble. Uh, And the reason it would open them up is because part of the agreement with Scott Ellington for the Alfred plea was that they would, in fact, maintain all the evidence and they would be willing to perform any testing as time goes along. And now they're, they're hiding. I personally think it was not destroyed. They don't want to test the evidence. They don't want to it to be proven that they wrongfully convicted these three men. And so they just lied, hoping it would go away. And now uh, Damien and his team are calling them on their bullshit, and they're just hiding. I I think the reason they're not responding is because they can't. They literally went on the record saying they destroyed the evidence, and now when they're asked for the proof of when it was destroyed, they know that it wasn't destroyed, and therefore there's, there's no good answer. Either you say, yes, it was destroyed here, and this is when and how, which will open them up to litigation, or they respond with, it wasn't destroyed, which then is admitting publicly that they straight up lied about what happened to it. So 
things should get interesting in that case now. I, I, it, it's it's awesome that Damian is not um, – Damian and Jason um, and their teams are not giving up on this, and they're going to keep pushing until they get some resolution, and hopefully this brings it. This is definitely a little happy dance moment. It's only yeah. a little one, but it's definitely a happy dance moment. It's, it's it's the first time that they've got you know in, in this whole this whole twenty seven years they've been doing going mm-hmm. through this where they finally got the state ruling in their favor. This could get some serious movement for their case. Yeah, yeah, and now they have. I mean, the, the West Memphis Police Department and and the the prosecutor's office has just been you know they've been protected almost by the state because mm-hmm. they just keep getting their way with things, and now. The state of Arkansas has said no, no more. You're not gonna, you're not gonna keep hiding the information here. So we'll keep you updated on that as things move along. Um, and then uh, with that, we'll move into your questions and our follow up for this week's episode. Zach, what were your thoughts on the case against Pablo? Did it sway your opinion at all? You know, with just with what's presented, it's hard to it's hard to know. I mean, the ex girlfriend's testimony is very damning. There's a lot of elements in there that are very damning. What do you mean by what? What about it was damning for you? The, you know, with the parts where she's talking about the dates, uh-huh. you know, even if they're wrong or whatever, you know, she had her work calendar. She's saying this, you know, some of the dates don't line up, but I mean, she was very adamant that those were not the dates. The, right. the date this murder occurred was not the date that he came to her house. And then the part with the prosecutor asking her if. She thought that that was a straight, you know, Pablo trying to get her to lie for him. And she said, yes, mm-hmm. that was huge. Actually, I think it was defense attorney, wasn't it? That might have been. Yeah, that might have been the one where it was because I know there was one question by the defense that kind of backfired. Mm-hmm. On. I think that's the one. And that I, that's tough. That's tough to get around. I think that it's problematic. Mm-hmm. OK, so if she's right, and he's wrong. It's problematic. I don't consider it damning because of so So the, the circumstances in which it happened. But I, but I feel like that plays to character. That plays to Pablo's character. Sure. But, but this is what I mean by it. I think it's, I think it's reasonable to – and I don't know. I'm, 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 not, I'm not like hiding the ball here. I don't mm-hmm. know whether he – what the dates were. And I don't think anybody knows. But I think it's reasonable that he truly believed it was those dates mm-hmm. and was wrong. And I think if that was the scenario – it would be reasonable for him to be kind of pushing. He was sitting with the police when he called her okay, about that. And so now remember he gets arrested over a month later. He didn't know he needed to account for that time. And in his interview, he says, no, I, that was the night I took my semi over to an L's house. And, you know, they say, well, couldn't she confirm that? And he calls her. Now imagine the stress you're under in that situation. You're calling her like, remember that night? And she's like, no, no, that was the 28th. He just got told he's been charged with murder. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, she may have said that he wanted her to lie. And maybe that's true, but I definitely don't think we can assume that because how would that sound different? Him saying, hey, I want you to lie for me and say this was it. How would that really sound different than him being like, no, it was the 20. You you have to remember it was the mm-hmm. 20. Or it was the fourteenth. It was the it, it, it was fourteenth. You have to remember that. Well, I I completely understand what you're saying, and it's very plausible. I'm not saying anything against that. Right. I'm just strictly saying what was said in court and what the jury heard. And what the jury heard uh-huh. is very, in my opinion, is damning. It's not what actually happened that was damning. It's what was heard. What the jury heard, right, was damning. And that's another part of what with with the jury. 
we talked about the lineups uh-huh. and how Claudia couldn't really pinpoint, but then Swainson said it's exactly this person. Yeah. And, and I think that a goes beautiful, perfect identification. I think that goes to show you again the jury's perception of everybody. Right. They're more willing to believe what an officer has to say over a normal citizen. Right. And and I think that puts a lot of weight in that. Yeah, that to me that was the in my opinion, having read most of the trial transcripts at this point, Swainson sealed the deal mm-hmm. in himself. So, so, so you were talking about with the ex girlfriend and the the date. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe let, let's just say it's wrong. He knew it was wrong, and he was trying to get her to lie. That still doesn't make him guilty. Correct. You, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, but there's reasons people do that. In this case, there's no question about why they just said we're charging you with murder. And if he's trying, you know, he could be innocent and still be trying to create an alibi for himself. So that that's not that that big of a problem. The car certainly is an issue. We're going to get into more of the car this week. But but Swainson saying that she she gave a beautiful, perfect identification and said that was him is the, is, the, is the thing that caused him to the, the, that cost him 30 years, 15 to this date, but a 30 year sentence for murder. That was huge. And, and it, what, what's frustrating for me is even reading the transcripts. Like Claudia, I don't know how the jury, I get it because, you know, the, 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 the Bogar, the prosecutor set the jury up for this in her opening argument that you're probably not going to hear Claudia identify him, but you will, we'll, we'll show you through the testimony of the detectives who were there what really happened. And when Claudia says, I mean, Jesus Christ, she looks at him right there and says, that's not the guy. Mm hmm. And then, and then Bogart tries to spend it. Well, it's been a long time. She's implying one of two things either. Well, maybe he's changed his appearance since then, or maybe your memory's not great. It's been a couple of years. Don't worry about that jury because Detective Swainson was there and he'll tell you what really happened. Yeah. I feel like they really did a good, I don't want to say a good job. Good job is probably not the proper term, but they did a good job of really being able to spin her words mm-hmm. to the direction they wanted claudia's testimony to be yeah she's their star witness you know when when the star witness is only on the stand for 10 minutes yeah that's a problem that's a problem you knew that the prosecution knew that was a problem Mm -hmm. right away and so they put her on they get her you know they need her to say she did the id so that 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 can allow swainson to get up and then and then put the nail in the coffin which he which he did my only other note from the episode really i think we're going to answer next week so i'm just gonna i'll bring it up but we don't have to answer it here is more about the car and mm-hmm. where it went, who he sold it to. But I'm really interested moving forward to hear about that in next week's episode. Right. Yeah. It'll be in two days. We'll hear that. And with that being said, Mike, what do we got for questions? A lot of questions about the car, Bob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Should I just say the blanket answer to all of these is we're going to talk about it on Sunday? Yeah, you might be able to answer some of this. Our first couple questions come from Emmett. First question is, it would be nice to hear about who Emerson was and all even though victimology won't be much help as he wasn't the intended target. What do you think? Yeah. I, you know, I've been trying to get more information on Emerson and it just not the, his family is certainly not, they don't seem to be supporting Pablo at all. I've listened to some police interviews from them and the sentiment seems to be like, well, even if he wasn't, you know, if, if these other people were involved, he had to still be connected somehow. They, so, you know, they're, they're not wanting to, 
to talk much at all to anyone right now. I feel like that's, you know, really hard on the family to live with a truth for so long to back down from it. So right. I can understand why they don't want to talk. Yeah. And I've, I've heard the same sentiment. I mean, we kind of heard it last season with Jennifer Jeffley, you know, when Juan was telling me, you know, like, as the evidence is kind of presented to him and he's like, well, it looks like she's innocent. It, for In that case, it's because of the confession. He's like, yeah, but she's still, she had to have been with, connected, you know, essentially like, I don't, I don't give her a pass because I think she was at least connected to these people mm. uh, and they hung on to it. But yeah, I don't know much about Emerson other than he was 17. But as you said, you know, it's also, it's not worth necessarily opening that wound because Emerson, Emerson's victimology isn't going to help solve this crime because Emerson was never the intended target of the crime. He just, he was an innocent bystander who happened to be there. So it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do a lot to move the ball forward to know more about his victimology. Emmett's next question, is Pablo still sticking to his story that he went to his ex-girlfriend's house that night, or has he since acknowledged that he must have gotten the date of the visit wrong? No, he still says that's that's what happened, and there's been nothing to disprove it. We just have basically his memory versus his ex-girlfriend's memory. And last, Emmett says, I'd love to hear about this neighbor to whom Pablo sold the Cadillac. You're definitely going to hear about him on Sunday, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Therese says, what, if any kind of weapon, did Pablo have access to? Was the issue even addressed? Also, it doesn't seem like Pablo would have ran with the same crowd as the other shooter. How did the prosecution tie him to the others responsible? And how the F did they manage to convict him? Uh, well, you know, how they convicted him is basically what we just said. They, they, you know, they had Detective Swainson on the stand telling him that the only eyewitness who was literally had the clear view and was paying attention to the shooters Gave him 100% beautiful and perfect ID. That's how he was convicted. You know, they got him there with the with the car. Uh, as far as weapons, um, I, I believe, if I remember correctly in the file, we're going to dig into a lot of these details later, but I believe that, oh, I, I'm not even positive about this, but I, I believe that Pablo did have access to a gun. That being said, the forensics from the scene do not match that gun. They They, they were able to identify the guns that the that the shots came from and then they weren't Pablo's or the one that he had access to if he had one that that that's again don't quote me on that for right as far as him even having access to one I'm sure on the forensics part but I, I believe I remember when I read through the police file the first time that that he did have access to a gun in some way as far as running in the same cry he didn't I mean there's even Jason Woolley in his interviews has said he doesn't know who Pablo is. He has no connection. So the, the the prosecution didn't make the connection. They never tried to make the connection. They, their case was built on his car was at the scene and Claudia ID'd him. And to an extent, he's trying to get his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend to lie about where he was. But do you think there's a little bit of racial element in there too? Like he's Hispanic and, and some of these other people are Hispanic. So they must be. They must get along. They there must know be. each other. I, I've long since maintained throughout season 10. Through, through Jennifer Jeffley's case that I think that specifically Swainson and the HPD around that time frame, certainly, I think that there was, there was, there was, I, it just seems to me there was an apathy around Hispanic victims crimes. So yeah, I think there was definitely a, ra a racial element. It's just my opinion. I'm not stating any of this as fact, but for me reading through Catalina Palomino's case, in season 10, it just like they didn't care. Like they, they couldn't. Have. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I guess I don't mean necessarily a, like a total racial element. I meant the, the racial element of Pablo's Hispanic. Right. These other guys are Hispanic and they're just being biased by that and going, oh, they obviously, they're all Hispanic. They know each other. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, I think my tr- problem with that is that I, I, th- I think it's because I know a little bit more than you okay. about the case because I'll say this. They fucking knew it wasn't Pablo when they took him to trial. Mm. We got a couple questions here from Brian. First, do we know if the police looked into any other gold Cadillacs registered to anyone else living in the local area? It would seem to me that gold would not be a popular color made, and chances are there are not many around. I don't know if they looked into any other ones or not, but I'll tell you this. It was Pablo's car. Like 100%. They got the right. I, I saw some people with some theories and saying that uh, they obviously got the wrong one or they figured out, I'll, I will make this very clear. The car they saw was the car at the scene and the license plates did come back to Pablo. There's no, there's really no question about that. Oh, wow. Brian's next question. Do we know if the neighbors living near Pablo's girlfriend remember seeing a semi parked outside her house the night of the shooting? You'd think a semi would be rather easy to notice, especially if it wasn't usually parked there. I, you know, I'm looking through the, for this week's episode, I'm looking through the case file right now to try. So far, I haven't seen that they did any kind of investigative work like that, where they were, you know, they, they're never looking for bad evidence, so to speak. Um, uh, and I couldn't even see where they even asked her if the, the night that he did come over, mm-hmm. if he was driving a semi. I don't know if they, but you know, it's, it's HPD, it's, it's Swainson. So how do they work? They have a whole conversation about it. They don't record it. They don't take notes. And then they write a report that says whatever the hell he wants it to say. I think you're right on the the bad evidence because she already said that wasn't the right date. So why push it further? Right. Brian says, trying to wrap my head around why he would drive his semi to his ex-girlfriend's house after being in it all day. This just seems to be a convenient way to not be driving the gold Cadillac. I think in the first episode, he discussed his other vehicle had a flat tire and, right. he, and it was in the middle of the night and he didn't want to change it. Yeah. I was going to say, you got to go back to episode one. So he had a Jaguar was okay. his was his car that he normally drove, but that I, I, it, it flat tire. There was something I, wrong with it. I thought it was a flat tire, but maybe it was something else, but he did have car trouble with it and couldn't drive it. Right. So, so that's why he drove this up. Yeah. So what he said is that he had sold the Cadillac before he left for that trip, got back, wanted to go see her. And uh, his other car, the Jaguar, had a flat tire, and so he just drove the semi over there. Sarah's got a few questions. First, did the state verify Pablo did or did not sell the car? Did Jason Woolley, Shorty, or the third guy, can't remember his name, own a similar car? The third guy's name was Ron Strandberg. Um, The state didn't verify. Again, they're never looking for bad evidence. You'll hear on Sunday they had some evidence that uh, that indicated that it had been sold, and they ignored it and, and, in fact, tried to hide it. Sarah's second question, what vehicle did Detective King use for the drive time test? Assuming a police cruiser, a personal vehicle, and not a semi with a trailer, how can his drive test be relevant? Well, it's, more, it's even more irrelevant than that. It doesn't matter what he was driving. He didn't go to the right place. Pablo never said, ever. That after was it, the trainee's wife picked him up, he has never said that he went back to the truck yard. He just went directly home from there. So the drive test should have been from the Love's truck stop to his house and then from his house to the pool hall. But he went and drove from the truck lot to the pool hall or to his, ho- to his house, whatever it was. And that was never. So the entire test was invalid. 
Are Pablo and his then ex-girlfriend still together now? No, Pablo actually got married to someone else before he was tried and convicted. Yeah, I think it, it gets a little confusing in which some of the interview you heard from him during episode one, because he said something about he went, you know, he went to his ex-girlfriend's and he went to his wife's house uh, the next day or, or or talked to his wife. So, so to be clear, he was he wasn't married to her then. The the his that the woman the other woman he was talking about he married her later. Do Shorty and Pablo resemble each other? One of the witnesses stated it was Shorty, but then picked Pablo from a photo lineup. Well, I think this kind of rolls back around to what Zach was asking earlier. There's um, what's the term I'm looking for? Basically, cross racial eyewitness identification is always very bad. Meaning, so if a white person is looking at a lineup with black people in it, they're more likely to think that to see similarities that aren't there as opposed to if a black person was looking at a, a lineup with black people in, in this case. So for, for me, uh, I definitely see, see how they're not, they don't really look alike if I take my time, but I would say like at a glance. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're both when you're, especially you're only looking at headshots. They're both Hispanic males. They both have similar haircuts, similar shaped faces. So yeah, at a glance, yeah, they they look similar, but that's you know I'm not a good person to to judge that on because you know it, it's just again it, it's it's I hope again that it's, it's like cross racial identification is is a known problem uh, as far as it's it's def- generally creates bad evidence. That sounds right. Sarah's last question: Did Pablo look different in the photo used in the photo array, and then two years later at trial? Not really, no. Carlos says if Detective King was the one to conduct the photo array with Claudia, why wasn't he the one to testify? He did testify. Uh, he j- his testimony just wasn't as strong as Swainson's. Uh, but that's a real good question for, your, uh, for you to think about as we roll into this week's episode. Christine says, how far away from the crime scene did the two women spot the gold Cadillac? Was it parked or moving? If moving, who was in it, according to the women? And how many gold Cadillacs were registered in the city at that time? The how many registered Cadillacs again is is irrelevant because we know that it was the correct it, it was the correct Cadillac. As far as how far away they spotted it, there's there's some some con some conflicts there uh, in the testimony. So I read you Claudia and her testimony didn't really say where how they connected with the car, just that they left and that they had followed it. Uh, in Alice's testimony, she says that they were driving home and they came across it. Um, I actually spoke with Claudia on the phone. The day before yesterday, uh, we're working. Hopefully, I'll have a full interview with her coming soon. I did spend about a half hour on the phone with her, um, not doing an interview, just to talk to her about the case. She did agree to do an interview, so hopefully we'll be able to get that put together. But when I asked Claudia about that, I'll say that she, the way she remembered it, she saw that car leave and saw they, they didn't like follow right behind it like they, like they were tailing it. She saw it leave and saw the direction it was going. And then had Alice drive in that direction because she was specifically looking for it. Whereas with Alice's testimony, it seems like th- the way it comes off to me, it seems like that they were just on their way home and happened across it. So uh, my guess is there wasn't a lot of communication between the two during that those moments. All right. We've got a few questions from Lynn. First, does Pablo have any evidence to back his claim he sold the car a week before the shooting like a bank deposit? Did he identify the purchaser? I'm guessing he didn't sell it to Shorty. When police impounded the Cadillac, who had possession of it? 
Yeah, there's some evidence that we're going to get into this week. And as far as who had the, no, we didn't sell it to Shorty. Uh, as far as who had it uh, at the when the police found it and impounded it, it was at the car lot. So Pablo's story is that it was. It sounds like this is what we'd call a buy here, pay here lot, where you finance through the the dealership. Um, so as far as deposits go, no, the the deal was that he sold this car. And that that person was just going to take over the payments to the lot. It's kind of a my Pablo refers to just like a mom pop car lot, but it's um it's 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 self it's a self finance car lot. And so the the guy he sold it to was supposed to just take over the payments, and then he told him he didn't want it. Pablo got it back, and so Pablo just returned the car uh, to the car lot. He took it back to the car lot and returned it to them. So that's that's what Pablo says happens, and that's where the car was when it was finally. Uh, discovered by police. That's a hell of a thing to do to commit a murder using the vehicle and then give it back to the guy. Right. Oh, as far as the uh, Pablo giving it back to the lot or the no, other no, guy the, giving the other it back guy, to Pablo. The other guy giving it back to Pablo. Yeah. Well, there's there's a little more to it than that, too. It wasn't uh, – he, he kind of said he didn't want it, and I think it had to do more with – I'm going to do another interview with Pablo to get the details on this, uh, but I want to get the base facts out first. But it sounds like – Basically, the guy wasn't going to make the – he gave it back, but he didn't really – it sounded more like Pablo took it back mm, okay. because the guy wasn't going to make the payments. And the Pablo was like, well, shit, the payments are in his name. So he just went and got the car and dropped it back off the at the lot. I, but I don't know exactly the dynamic of how that went down. But I do know that Pablo went, got the car, had somebody drive him there, got the car, and then dropped the car off at the car lot. Okay. Next, Lynn says, did Pablo know or know of Claudia, Alice, Adrian, or Shorty prior to the murder? No. Claudia, Adrian, or Alice? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I, that's one of the questions when I spoke with Claudia. I asked her, did you, did you know Pablo at all? Like, did you have any connection? And she said, no. She didn't, she didn't know who he was at all. Has it been verified that the picture identified by Claudia in the photo array was actually Pablo? Yes. Yeah, it was. Our last question is from Gary. Did Pablo's logbook get checked against the date discrepancies? Uh, so I'm working on that right now. I had asked uh, the attorney. So in the what the state admitted as evidence, what we have photo of is just the page of the logbook that uh, covered the night of the murder and the next morning. Uh, so I'd asked them, and I think they're they're checking into that now to see if we have the full logbook because I'd like to see what it says on the dates that his ex-girlfriend said that he was actually there. So, so there'll be more coming up on that later. Um, I don't know if we'll, if we'll ever really get to the bottom of that. Depends if, you know, we have any, if we were able to get those records. With seeing what he does have, does this story line up with the log from that day? Yeah, kind of there. Uh, so it's a pretty vague log and he just, he has in the book that he was, you know, his trip that he was going to. And then it just says, Till midnight and then off duty, he wrote. And there's so there, I kind of mentioned this last week where there, it's not like he's not like tracking by the minute where he's at. It's just, you know, the page ends at midnight and then the next day start. And so at the end of that page, he just wrote, you know, that he that he was off duty. So the next page started, which starts at midnight was he was that he was off duty. I think that we're I'm very confident based on phone records that, that we heard about that, you know, he wasn't back in Houston by midnight, so it was probably 12, 30, 1 o'clock when he was actually off. But that's what the logbook says. So, yeah, to an extent, it confirms 
that there's also the testimony of his trainee who confirmed the same thing. Um, so, but, but the problem is a matter of, if, if he had gotten back into Houston, so, so say if that ping on that, that, that cell phone tower in Dallas, uh, that call, say that was at, at 10 PM, then we wouldn't even be having the conversation because, you know, or, or 1030 because we definitely, but the problem is he did get back into town possibly with enough time to somehow make this work. But then you got to ask yourself the question. This seems like I think most people would agree this is this was a premeditated ambush attack. He was never what we do know is he was not expecting to be in town that day. So in what world and scenario was he driving his semi in Dallas and something breaks down? And he's like, you know what? I'm going to hurry up and get back because I need to go kill Adrian. Yeah. You know, with a bunch of people that I don't know. Yeah, it does. None of that makes sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, a lot of you have been asking about documents. Yes, they're coming. I haven't updated the website yet. I need to get the information to Katie to start the so you so people can write Pablo too with that address. The season eleven section needs to get put up on on the website. That's on that's on me. Uh, I just been super swamped and haven't got the information to Katie yet. But also with the documents, they're coming. But be, as you're going to hear over the next few weeks, because of the nature of this case, I have to do more redacting than normal. So I re- and I ne- and I need to make sure I get it right. So I need to go through these documents with a very fine tooth comb and get the, the the necessary redactions done before I put the case files up. I just I just I have to be very careful with this one about about some of that stuff. So that stuff is coming. I'm sorry they're not up yet, uh, but but they'll be coming up soon. Another uh, that Mike, you said that was that was the last question. That's all we got, man. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, season seems to be going pretty well. I'm, 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 I'm anxious. I'm kind of chomping at the bit, even with like a Zach sitting across from me, look, asking some of these questions. I'm chomping at the bit to get you guys the rest of this story because you're gonna, you're gonna lose your mind. And and I'll give you a little preview. Sunday's episode coming in two days is titled "The Crooked Cop." See you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. 
And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus, terms apply.